Hello everyone, and welcome to the first episode of the Unlocking the Potential of Assessments podcast. Monthly, we're going to delve into creating, delivering and reporting on valid and reliable assessments. Together, we will discover and examine the latest in best practice guidance by inviting assessment luminaries, influencers, subject matter experts and customers and users to discuss all things assessment. This series will offer advice and thought leadership to those just starting out with assessments, those who've been in the industry at length, and anyone with a keen interest in the future of assessments. I'll be your host, John Kleeman. I'm founder and executive director of Question Mark, the industry leader in assessment management software. Today, we begin our series with our very first episode where we talk with assessment luminary Jim Parry, who's owner and chief executive manager of Compass Consultants. Jim has over 40 years experience as a course designer, developer and instructor. He served over 22 years with the United States Coast Guard and was then employed for nearly 12 years by the US Coast Guard as a civilian employee as the test development and e-testing manager at a major training command. During his tenure, he guided the move from paper to online testing for the entire US Coast Guard and developed the first ever standard operating procedure, a document of over 300 pages which established policies and guidelines for all testing within the Coast Guard. He's a consulting partner with Question Mark and has presented numerous best practice webinars and training sessions. Uh, Jim, good morning and welcome to our podcast. Good morning, John. Thank you. So in this podcast, we're going to talk a little bit about your experience and then uh, some advice about uh, creating assessments. And so can we start with how, how did you learn about assessments? How did you get into assessments? Well, I guess it all starts back when I was in grammar school and high school, just like everybody else, we were exposed to assessments. Uh, during that time, no one really questioned what was on a test or how it was written. We just took the test and complained if we thought it was unfair but nothing was ever done. Uh, then I enlisted in the Coast Guard back in 1971. And part of that, the path to advancement involved both performance and written tests. Most of the performance testing seemed pretty fair because you had to show somebody what you could do. And they said you could either do it or you couldn't do it. But then came the written tests. Uh, there were two types. And back then, I didn't know one from the other. But there was a criterion reference test that had a passing score of 70. And then a norm reference test that placed me on the advancement list, uh, which is a rank order type test. They took the best of the uh, best of the best, so to speak, and rank ordered them on who's going to advance and who's not. Uh, well, when I when I was studying for those tests, I, I didn't think I, I didn't really know the difference between the two. I just studied and took the tests. Uh, on on the test, uh, many times I wonder why certain questions were there. They had nothing to do with my job or my specialty. The items are outdated. They had no correct answer or multiple correct answers. Or the test writer wrote them to try to be funny. You couldn't do much about it except challenge a test in the chain of command and hope you had a response for a credit on a test. Could you just um, uh, uh, remind our audience what the difference is between a criterion reference test and a normative norm reference test? Certainly. A criterion reference test is one that each test item is based on a specific criteria or a job task, so to speak, and has to be referenced to that task, uh, usually uh, something that's found in a job task analysis. Or a norm reference test or an NRT is a test designed to rank order or rack and stack people for advancement or 
in the case of college uh, like the SAT or the GRE, it gives you a score and uh, the college or in the military, they decide how many are going to advance and they have a cut, uh, cut score based on how many slots are available. And for college entrance, that could be anything. Uh, you go to one college, it could be a 600, another college, it could be a 900, whatever. So it, it's a more, more, more generalized test that covers a lot of subjects and not like a criterion, which is specifically designed to cover certain subjects. And what, what made you, when you were younger, decide to get into assessments as a career? Well, again, back, back when I was uh, on active duty in the Coast Guard, as I advanced in the ranks, I was asked to be part of a study group uh, to assess the effectiveness and fairness of advancement testing. This is where I found out what was really going on behind the curtain, and it was kind of kind of worried me. That's <laughs> what, what happened there. Uh, I I finally got to see who was writing the tests and how, how they were developed, and I really got interested in testing uh, as part of that study group. I, I couldn't do much about what was going on except make recommendations and hope things changed. After that, several of my assignments in the Coast Guard were as an instructor, which involved designing and administering both performance and written tests. I wanted to make them as fair as possible, so I began researching the art of testing while I was working on both my associate's and bachelor's degree. Interesting. What happened after then? Well, let's, let's fast forward to my life after retiring from active duty and Coast Guard. I worked in the civilian sector for about 12 years. And the jobs that I had, I had two different jobs, both involved uh, performance and written testing. Uh, one was with a crane inspection company. I was uh, doing crane inspections and training operators and, and rigging and different heavy equipment. So a lot of performance testing there. And the other was with a maritime licensing school uh, where we had primarily written testing for uh, licensing people who were going to work on ships uh, as masters or mates, uh, engineers, and so forth. But again, I, I wasn't the boss, so to speak, in these, so I couldn't make a lot of changes, just mostly recommendations. And then, then came my next job. Uh, I was a government civilian employee for the Coast Guard, as you mentioned, at the, at the training center for about 12 years. And what were you involved with? Uh... Uh, that's where I really got a chance to go behind the curtain, which was great. I, I found out what I saw, again, wasn't really pretty. And I presented some convincing arguments to my direct supervisor who in turn pushed them forward up to the Coast Guard headquarters level. And they created a new position for me as a test development manager for the major training center that I was working at. And this is where I was able to help push the Coast Guard into the future with computer database and test development system. The first system that the Coast Guard had was contracted uh, to be designed as a non-network client-only system that was only available to people who wrote advancement tests. The biggest problem with this, it didn't allow any sharing or online testing, but it was a great step forward because what they used to do is have a bunch of index cards with a single question on an index card, and they had to design a new test every six months for up to 150 items by typing it in. So that was a big step forward, having a database to get select questions. Uh, one of the biggest problems with that database Again, as I said, it was a client-only system where nobody else could see the test items. The only time somebody got to review the test items was 
when the test was getting ready to be published and printed on paper to send out to the masses for advancement. In my position, I was able to look at the items before they went out and make recommendations, but I never had the final say. Uh, the test writer, if they decided to change it, could. If they didn't want to change it, the test went out as is. So I didn't have a lot of control over that. The, the database was being used for advancement testing only, but something I discovered at that training center, there were two schools using a different system for the resident courses they had. And that system happened to be an early version of question mark perception. I think it was version 3.0. And once I found out the capabilities of that online server client-based system, I really started pushing, uh, working with the Coast Guard Institute to move the Coast Guard into the future. After about a year of discussion and testing, there was a solicitation published and a contract was awarded and question mark was selected as a provider. Was that a, an easy process to bring that in and, and get that in, in place? Actually, uh, it wasn't that easy. Uh, as, as everybody knows, change is tough and people do resist change. And after the advancement test writers having full control and secrecy over their test items, they now had to let someone else see and approve items before they could be used on a test. Part of that, they had to prove how the test item supported the task and had a valid reference. Uh, my assistant and I didn't have very many friends when we initiated the approval process. And, and just to check, I understand that. Are you saying that um, the advancement tests were used for sort of promotion within the Coast Guards are going from one rank to another? Is that what, uh, what it's about? And uh, so these were really quite important tests. Yes, they, they were very important tests. There was advancement from one rank to another. Again, they had both the criterion reference test and those who passed the criterion reference test with a fixed cut score were, and had all the other requirements, the time and service and so forth, were allowed to take the norm reference test, which was 150 questions. And again, the, the only people that really ever saw these things when they were in their, in their were the test writers who were writing them with not a whole lot of approval process. And there was no, no really set process at any of the training centers where the tests were written to have, have improved. There was no common process. Each training center set their own approval methods. Back years ago, the Coast Guard Institute was in charge of all that testing and it was more organized and then they moved the testing to the training centers and that's where it became disorganized and people could write what they wanted and Sometimes it was checked, sometimes it wasn't. And if I remember rightly, you've also got a master's degree uh, in, in a related field? I was working on a master's degree in human performance technology and educational leadership. Interestingly, in addition to lots of research and papers to write, there were still written tests. Most of these tests were written very poorly, but there wasn't much I could do about it except point out the flaws to the professors. So this encouraged me to start a training program for the test writers in the Coast Guard. And this began as a program only for the, those assigned to the training center that I worked at, but soon expanded to other major training commands throughout the Coast Guard, as well as the Confluence and Border Protection folks. And occasionally we'd have an Army participant from a local training and doctrine command show up. And so it feels like you almost went into testing and spent more time in testing because you took tests that you thought were bad and you wanted to improve things. That's, that's basically it. I, I uh, wanted to be able to improve testing, uh, make make sure people were being tested on the right things. There, there weren't any so-called trick questions or people trying to be funny and so forth. 
uh, another interesting thing that happened when I was in that job, happened with a telephone call from me to the Navy Advancement Center. I had a question about how they addressed a particular problem with advancement testing. And the person I was talking to mentioned that they had just discussed the same thing with the Air Force Advancement Center the week before. Uh, when I heard this, I just suggested to them, well, why don't we form an inter-service group where we can talk about testing for all the military services. And that's what we did. We, we formed what we called ISTAG, I-S-E-T-A-G, which was the inter-service testing and advancement group. And we tried to meet every six months to share ideas and policies as well as investigate ways to make sure testing was fair for all the testing military services. And tell me a bit about the standard operating procedure that you created for the Coast Guard. That was, that was what I feel one of my greatest accomplishments when I was working at the, at the Coast Guard job was developing that first time ever standard operating procedure on test development, delivery, and analysis. It was about 325 pages or so, and it was the first comprehensive publication to have everything about testing in one, one spot, as a one-stop one shop, so to speak. Uh, the Coast Guard did have different unwritten policies in place. They had some written publications, but none of them were official, and they were scattered around. So I'm not saying there was no guidance, but it was no official guidance for, for, for testing in the Coast Guard. And I'm pretty proud of that publication. As far as I know, it's still being used. And then you moved on into consulting. What, what made you start your consulting business? I wanted to share my knowledge of testing with the world. Uh, while working with the Coast Guard, I had the opportunity to attend various professional development workshops and conferences, including the Question Mark Users Conference and ATD. The nice part about that was meeting and discussing testing with people who live and breathe testing, and that encouraged me to learn everything I could about testing. Probably the two people who encouraged me the most were Sharon Schrock and Bill Coscarelli. Uh, being able to meet and discuss testing with these world-renowned experts on a personal level it's really been a highlight of my career. Yeah, I'm really impressed with, the, with them as well. They, they talked at a question mark user conference a few years back, and uh, they're great experts. Maybe uh, uh, we can get them or one of them onto a future podcast here. Could you start sharing some, some lessons learned so people listening to this podcast are going to be people who are perhaps uh, not as experienced as you, you in testing, but uh, involved in creating tests or assessment programs? What lessons would you like to pass on to other people? I'd say some of the biggest lessons uh, are uh, designing test items and tests is not as simple as some folks might think. You can't assume that people who have been teaching know the ins and outs of testing. Just think about it. Is test development and psychometrics an integral part of any teacher education program? As far as I know, it's not really covered a whole lot. They might mention testing and teaching education programs, but not really get in depth in it. Something else is don't assume that just because someone's assigned or designated as a test writer, that they have sufficient training and knowledge to understand the implications of poor testing practices. So what are some of the challenges that organizations face in your experience? Probably one of the challenges is setting a fair, a fair pass or cut score. Think back during the formative years of schooling and even in university, we've come to know the universal scoring system, as I call it, of A, B, C, D and F being associated with some kind of fixed number scale. This tends to work fine in the academic world because it provides a universal reference point for determining a pass or fail point, assuming all students throughout the world are testing the same criteria. 
the fixed point grading system then becomes problematic in the real world. So explain why you can't just uh, pick a number out of a hat or use a fixed number like 70% or 80% as a pass score. Well, the biggest problem with that is what we call the arbitrary method of setting a cutter pass score is it can't be defended. Who determines that a CPA only has to have 70% on a test to be certified? Or say a nurse only has to select the correct procedure 60% of the time to be proficient. So what, what criteria was used to set that 60, 70, 80, so forth as a pass score? If you get challenged or taken to court, what are you going to say? It's always been like that? Or how about, because I think that's what it should be. So I, I, I know that one of the methods for setting a cut score that you've uh, sought to popularize over the years is the Angoff method. Can you explain a little bit about that uh, and a bit of how to do it? Certainly. The, the Angoff method, or more commonly nowadays, the modified Angoff method, been around for over 40 years. It's been upheld in many times in court challenges of people challenging what the cut score is going to be. It's one of the accepted or recognized test-centered methods of setting a fair defensible cut score. A test-centered method uh, is one that does not consider performance of individual test takers by pitting one against the other. It compares each test item against a criterion, and using a panel of judges or experts comes to an empirical decision on how many test takers who are performing at what we call the minimum acceptable competence level or a MAC level should be able to respond correctly to a test item. There are several accepted test center methods, but I found the modified Angoff method tends to work pretty well for most, most tests. The, uh, the method is basically seven steps, or you can call it five steps, depending how you group the steps together. It starts out by selecting a diverse panel of experts who are completely familiar with the subject matter being tested. Typically, three to five is your minimum, and 10 to 12 is your maximum. If you get more than 12 people, it tends to get out of hand sometimes. If you get less than three to five, if you have to throw somebody's score out, now you're down to maybe two or four, and it, that, that doesn't give you enough spread of the numbers to play with. So you have them take the test as a normal test director would to set a ceiling score. We'll talk about the more on that a little bit later. The judges come to a consensus as to what the MAC should be, whatever the test is. So, so the minimum acceptable competence of the test. Right, the, the, right, the minimum yep. acceptable competence. So what, what, what that person should know. This is the most difficult part of the Angoff or modified Angoff or any of the test center methods that use, use this type of uh, MAC, which most of them do, because you have experts and the experts tend to think like an expert, which they should. And they don't dumb it down enough, so to speak. I hate to say that word, dumb it down, but they have to put themselves at the level of the test taker who is taking that test and decide how many of the minimally competent performers that whatever the test is designed for should pass that particular or should get that particular test item correct. So once they come up with that, that criteria, what the MAC looks like, the minimum acceptable competence performer, each judge reads each test item and determines in their own mind what percentage of the MACs should be able to respond correctly to the item. At this point, they're told to set a floor based on a chance guess. So if you have a four alternative item, the chance guess factor is 25%, a three alternative, 33%. What that's saying is that if somebody knew nothing at all about the subject and it's a four alternative test, statistically, 25% of the people are going to get that, that test item correct just because they're guessing at it. And again, for a three alternative, 
33%. If it's a true false, 50%, so forth. Then they're, they're told to work individually and score each item. The scores are recorded, usually on a spreadsheet, and any item that has a standard deviation of 10 or more among the judges is discussed, and the judges can change your score or not. The final cut score is calculated by averaging the score for each judge for each item. So basically, if one judge says 65% of people should be able to, minimally competent people should be able to get the item right, another one says 70%, another one says 75%, then the contribution to the cut score for that item is 70%. Right, right. And then and then uh, if you get a large standard deviation, we'll say we had uh, five judges and we had 70, 70, 75, uh, 70, and then a 45. That would raise that standard deviation to above 10 because of that one outlier. And that's the point at which the judges would discuss among themselves, uh, number one, why did this one judge score 45, saying only 45% of the people get it correct, when the other ones are saying 70. And after discussion, it could go either way. The higher judges could lower their score, or the lower judge could raise their score, or if the one outlier refuses to move, that score is just disregarded. And that's why you need, let's say, more than three to five people, uh, just uh, just in case you have to disregard the score. Yeah, I mentioned earlier about the, the judge is supposed to take the test as a typical test taker would to set the, what we call a ceiling score. But the ceiling score would be the average of the experts taking the test. We'll say that if it's a 50-question test and the average score of the experts was an 85, we couldn't score any item higher than 85 because if the experts can't score higher than 85, we couldn't expect the minimally competent performer to score an 85. That makes sense. The problem now becomes the large databases. It's kind of hard sometimes for the judges, if you have a 1,000 questions in a database or even a couple hundred questions in a database, to take the test as a test taker would. That's very time consuming and sometimes difficult to manage. So I found that step can be omitted and still produce acceptable results by not having the judges take the test, as long as they have an understanding that you know, of how the system works. So, so that makes sense. But just moving on from the uh, thinking about databases, so what a lot of organizations do is that they'll randomize question selection to make each test different and uh, make it harder for people to copy from other people or easier. Do you have a retake to retake the same test? So they might, for example, select three questions out of 10 in the topic or do other kind of randomization to do question selection. How, how do you make that fair if you are randomizing questions? Very good question, John. Uh, with, with the advent of computer databases, tests that have to be pulled at random, there's always a possibility that a test may be at different difficulty level and even have different content every time it's generated. That's what, what some people tend to do with databases is just make one, one repository, one topic, we'll say call it history or call it uh, uh, counting, whatever, and put all the questions in one spot. And they tell the uh, computer database to select 20 questions or select 50 questions, whatever, with no criteria on, on what topic or whatever. And that makes it very difficult and, and it makes an unfair test. Uh, to ensure the generation of a fair and equitable test in the database, the test generate, uh, creation application has to be instructed as to what test items to include. So if the exact same test is given every time, it's pretty easy. We know it's a fixed 20-question test, and we've, we've set it up. Uh, the form, the, the same test form, the only thing might be randomized there are the alternatives. But if we don't tell it uh, what difficulty level and what topic to pull from, 
there's no way it could be fair. So um, can you explain that risk a little bit more? I mean, what uh, what, what would be the consequences of, of doing of doing that? Uh, the, the danger of just selecting items from a random database is that the test is probably never going to be a fair test. It may be one that covers the wrong topics or doesn't cover every topic like it should. The difficulty for one test might be really easy. Next test might be moderately difficult or hard. It's kind of like luck of the draw. We want to make sure testing is fair at, at all times and make sure every time a test is given, when it's drawn from a large database, that it's the same difficulty. Uh, but what, I, what I've done to help this is design the spreadsheet tool that helps ensure the same difficulty and cut score maintained within reason by utilizing results of the cut score rating session, the Angoff session or whatever session is used. And my tool calculates the number of easy, moderate and hard test items available from each topic based on the uh, Angoff score. So just checking, I understand that basically what you're doing is you're classifying questions into easy, moderate or hard based on the Angoff score or presumably if you've got actual real data from past administration, you could you could use that as well to help refine the, the data? Yes, definitely. What, what, I, what I do for based on the NGOF score is, is divide the NGOF score basically by three. Uh, typically, the lowest you'd go would be 25% for alternative multiple choice, and the highest would go at 95. So you divide that into three sections. So you have the, the lowest, the hard, then the moderate, then the easy. And what I do is have the, the client put those into buckets uh, under a topic or a subtopic called hard, moderate, easy, or even put a meta tag, depending on what program they're using, to assign the hard, moderate, easy. And then you just select, uh, say, for example, you've got um, uh, six questions in a topic. You might select uh, two of them are meta tagged easy, two that are meta tagged moderate, and two that are meta tagged hard, something like that? Yes, that's exactly right. Uh, what, what my spreadsheet does, it calculates how many easy, moderate, and hard from each of the topics have to be selected every time to maintain the, the cut score within a couple of points. And you're never going to get exact, but it's going to be within a couple of points by, by putting those into the buckets. That way you can do a pseudo, pseudo random design for the test every time. And it's going to keep the, uh, both the difficulty and the number of items from each topic the same every time the test is given. Thank you. And, and so if anybody wants to learn more about the Angoff method and things, there's, there's quite a lot of uh, materials on this on the question mark website. Some of it uh, based on presentations uh, by you from uh, some time ago. And I think if you just Google question mark uh, and Angoff, A-N-G-O-F-F, you, sh you should come across them. So Jim, that's, that's hopefully really helpful to people. Do you want to just share how you see uh, some some future challenges, and in particular, how organizations who are concerned about cheating at tests in the workplace might identify risks and mitigate against them? Sure. Uh, think about students and employees. They're, they're pretty smart people nowadays. In the past, uh, a student or an employee just took a test and lived with the results. Now that's changed a lot. People question things. Uh, the days of trip questions and or attempts to be funny and trivia questions are gone because people are challenged these. Responsibility of testing organization to provide fair, equitable, and challenging tests that can be defended. The test items on any test have to be able to be referenced back to specific job tasks or, in some cases, some legal requirement. And the only way this is going to happen 
is to start out joining, doing a job task analysis, which is deciding what people really do on a job and what they really have to know. And your test has to be tied to the JTA, the job task analysis. Uh, in addition to that, the, the test plan, like a blueprint, should be designed. Now think about building a house. Could you build a house without a blueprint? You might be able to, but you might forget something or, or put something in that doesn't have to be there. Same thing as a test. You have to have a blueprint to design it. A lot of people aren't doing this. Uh, several reasons, uh, JTA, job task analysis, are time consuming, sometimes costly. A lot of people really don't understand how to do a job task analysis. And also experienced test writers are really tough to find. Uh, many organizations tend to select someone who they consider a subject matter expert and tell them to write a test, but they don't give them any training in, in testing or psychometrics testing. Usually it's somebody who has been on the job for 15, 20 years uh, doing it. So now they, they pull them out of the field and put them in an office and say, start writing tests. Uh, other organizations are beginning to issue certification and credentials. That's a great thing because that gives the person who has the credentials and credibility as to level of expertise. But if you run a, credential, a credentialing or certification program, I highly recommend that the guidelines published in the International Organization of Standards be followed from the beginning. There's one standard in particular, ISO 17024, which is conformity assessment, general requirements for bodies operating certification of persons that provides a really, really comprehensive plan to design a credentialing or certification program. Yeah, and just to clarify on that, if I understand right, people could use um, ISO 17024 as a guidelines, even if they, or they can also get accredited to it. So you could, if you wanted to get accredited to 17024, but you could also just use it as a primer for best practice and not get accredited to it. And both those things might be useful. Definitely, it's a real good guideline. If they wanted to go through the whole accreditation process, that's great. But if not, at least it gives them step-by-step step what to do and what uh, things to be aware of when you're doing a credentialing program. No, I agree. That's that's great. So what about um, workplace cheating? Any, any thoughts on that? <laughs> workplace cheating. That's that's something that's really kind of getting worse. Think about it. As mentioned earlier, students and employers are getting pretty smart. And this is true when it comes to cheating in a workplace also. Back, back in the past, the only thing we had to worry about uh, was maybe watching for notes to be passed or peeking at your neighbor's paper, or maybe having something written on the back of their hands or their shirt sleeves. Today, we have electronics and Google type search engines. So numerous ways people can cheat. They have cell phones, they have earpieces, they have notes taped to or integrated into snack or drink labels. Uh, I've even seen pictures of micro inside of artificial fingernails. And the list goes on and on and on. People are getting really, really creative on how to cheat. So what that comes down to is our test monitors or invigilators must be more vigilant to watch out for cheating and think about all the different ways they can cheat. Back back in the old days, the, the test monitor would just sit there, maybe read the newspaper and, and glance up every now and then if they, if they even glanced up. But now with all these different ways to cheat, the monitors have to be really, really vigilant. I think about tests that are that are administered remotely, such as on a, a computerized database, such as Question Mark. If you're going to do that, consider employing or hiring a test monitoring supplier that can both see and hear test taker by, by a video and audio link. 
Something else to be concerned about with cheating is make sure the database is secure from hackers. We hear the news every day about somebody hacking into something. Same thing happens in test databases. Uh, they have to be really monitored and be behind good firewalls so people can't hack into them, both internally and externally. Something else that people tend to forget is the internet. This is where Mr. Google comes in handy again. They search the internet uh, on a periodic basis to ensure test items answers aren't being published. One way to do this is type your exact uh, question, your exact test item into the, into the search engine and see what comes up. You'd be surprised that some of your test items are out there, uh, especially colleges, colleges and high schools that they don't tend to change their tests a whole lot and the students uh, publish them on the internet. That there, there's even some, some services, so to speak, out there that pay people, pay test takers to memorize questions and alternatives and post them on the internet. They, they get them when they're going into the, the test room and say uh, questions one through five, I want you to memorize and I'll give you a certain amount of money. And they publish them. So just be aware, cheating is going high tech and be ready to guard against it. Yeah, no, that's that's great advice. And I, and I think the advice we, we like to give people as well is to each program should look at their own risks. So for example, if you're a, a medium-sized company just testing your employees, then probably the questions aren't going to go on the internet. But if you're a college, then they might well do. So look at the risks that apply to you and then take mitigations to, to deal with it. Does that, does that make sense uh, to you also, Jim? It certainly does. It just, it just be, be, a, be a vigilant, be aware, and be creative because the, the, the cheaters are creative. But think outside the box. Don't think, don't think of traditional methods anymore of the note passing. So if you just wanted to uh, give two takeaways uh, to people listening to this podcast, two things they should go away and maybe do differently as a result of uh, your experience or two pieces of advice that they should take in mind when delivering tests, uh, is there something you could suggest? Probably the biggest one is make sure your test is testing the right thing. And the only way you can do that is to have a valid job task analysis and have your test item designed to support the tasks or topics in that job task analysis. And the next thing I'd say is make sure the cut score is fair. Use some kind of method, the angle, the bookmark, or whatever method you want to use to ensure that your cut score is a fair cut score and not just an arbitrary cut score. Jim, I'd like to really thank you for participating in our podcast. You're an excellent uh, explainer, and you've got such a wealth of experience in testing. It's a real pleasure to talk to you, and thank you very much indeed for joining us today. Well, thank you, John, and thanks for having me. You're welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please reach out to me directly at john at questionmark.com with any questions, comments, or if you'd like to keep the conversation going. You can also visit the Questionmark website at questionmark.com to register for any of our many best practice webinars we host monthly. Thanks again, and please tune in next month for another exciting podcast discussion.